0: is actually a original composition made by Chibi Tech, who is probably my favorite chiptune artist. Uh, I commissioned her to do this, and the track is actually called Kaze Fuma. Let me tell you, that was a, that was a long time in the making. Uh, she was actually working on some, let's say, real stuff outside of doing a, a theme song for a stupid podcast. And the time it took to wait for this thing, completely worth it. Um, I've got some of the looping thing here underneath as I'm talking. Man, I I love this thing. I, I almost wanted to do a whole podcast based just based on this one damn track, but, you know, the uh, <clears throat> actual meat of it's only, like, a minute long, so it's not. I don't think I could stretch out a podcast to do a uh, deep dive on a minute track. I don't know. Anyway, I really do dig that thing, and I hope you dig it, too, because that's going to be the theme song from now on until, I don't know, I decide I can't do this podcast anymore, which, yeah who knows. Anyway... In case you're unfamiliar with who the hell I am, which is probably pretty likely, um, I'm Jason Ariola. I am the one of the founders, the only one who's still standing of Games and Junk, a website and podcast that exists on its own. Uh, the the f- I've been over how much I dislike that word, but the flagship podcast uh, that has been a mainstay of the site for 100 episodes has sort of been retired. I wanted to actually do some other projects, and this was one of them. Rock Out With Your Card Out was always one of those features that I was running on the site that I I always kind of struggled with. On one hand, I love video game music, and I have a ton of video game soundtracks that I've purchased over the years, and I wanted to be able to like kind of share them with you. Even if I found like, new stuff, I wanted to be able to talk about it, but the trouble is with putting it in print and then embedding a track in there it didn't perform as well as I was hoping and then it struck me hey why did you make this a podcast you dummy you're the one who edits all these stupid things that you do for the site it would probably make more sense to actually do this in podcast form of some sort I'm still trying to find the damn footing for the thing um so this is gonna kind of be an interesting journey I suppose on all of our parts as you listen to me try to find my footing I think I'm a decent enough podcast host at this point that I can make this come together. It's just a matter of trying to figure out exactly what I want to make this podcast. I don't want to say I'm doing something rather basic here, but it might be a little basic. What we're going to do in this episode is, since I'm sort of introducing this podcast to the world, and you're probably being introduced to me for the first time, I wanted to do some of my favorite introductory themes in video games. Now, some of these games are not going to be what you would consider my favorite games. I just happen to like these songs a little bit, maybe a lot. I don't know. You might find out. Um, but yeah, I thought it'd be kind of a good good way to kind of hit the ground running here with this. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and I'm going to shoot for about an hour's worth of these things. We'll probably go a little bit over. Uh, I had a list of the favorites I wanted to do, and unfortunately... Uh, We'd probably be looking at about a two and a half, three hour long podcast, even if I didn't really do much talking in between segments. So we're going to kind of trim those back a little bit and maybe revisit them further down the line. I I do need to spread out the content a little bit. Uh, This is technically going to be an easier thing for me to record because I don't have to worry about coordinating with people across multiple time zones and then waking up in the middle of what is my night because I work graveyards. So it's a little bit tougher to coordinate with people when I sleep completely backwards from the rest of the world. But anyway, I've maybe got a slant towards 16-bit era music. The Super Nintendo was probably the system where video game music kind of really stuck in my head. And I've talked about this on the podcast for my site a little bit more heavily, but if this is your first time hearing who the hell I am, then that's going to mean absolutely jack-nothing to you. So, so rather than really belabor the point any further... Uh, The first track we're going to talk about here is probably my favorite video game soundtrack overall. Now, I hope you don't get a misunderstanding. I am not very, let's say, learned on the technical end of music and composition. So if you're looking for something that's going to delve into, like, the technical end a little bit more, you're probably on the wrong podcast. If you're looking for more something along the lines of, like, a radio show with some personal anecdotes, then this is probably going to be up your alley. Whether or not uh, I'm going to be your cup of tea to begin with, I guess, is going to see if this thing kind of lives or dies. But I guess we'll see how that goes. Now, getting back to the point of what the hell I was just saying. um, The first track we're going to go over today is from the Secret of Mana soundtrack. And the composer for that entire soundtrack is Hiroki Kakuta. The track we're going to be going over is Fear of the Heavens. Now, again, this is one of my favorite soundtracks overall. So I might be a little bit biased as far as this being my favorite introductory theme for a video game. So I don't know. Uh, I think the way this track is structured is just very fitting of Secret of Mana as a game. Now, it does this very morose, kind of melodic, sad intro. I guess morose and sad are sort of hand in hand with each other. But anyway, and about halfway through, it does this build up where it kind of gives you a sense of of hope of something going on that is going to climax and maybe everything's going to turn out okay and then it slowly fades back and kind of goes back into the maybe not sort of aspect. No, I'm not going to deny. I could be reading a little too much into it just because I know what happens in Secret of Mana, so maybe I'm sort of uh planting my own take on the opening theme. But I think Fear of the Heavens does a marvelous job of not only setting up the game as a whole, but also the rest of the soundtrack, with giving you a little bit of a taste of the different themes. Um, Granted, there are some other themes in there that uh, aren't just, you know, sad. Uh, Secret of Mana does have its moments of peppy little things to it, we'll say. Fear of the Heavens really doesn't have that, but... I think as the overall, we'll say, structure of the story goes, Fear of the Heavens is a very fitting way of explaining exactly what the overall thing is for Secret of Mata. So, without me bantering on any further, why don't we go ahead and listen to Fear of the Heavens instead? And let's not lean too heavily on Chiptune stuff. I do want to show that I do have a little bit of a range of interests here. So this next track we're going to be listening to is Nate's Theme 2.0. That is by Greg Edmondson, and that is from Uncharted 2 Among Thieves. Now, I just really like the build-up on this one in particular. I'm sure there's some difference between uh, the original and maybe the one in 3. then Probably the one in 4, I don't know. Even if there is or isn't, this is the one I became familiar with and that really kind of made enough of an impression on me that it's made it into a few playlists, Uh, some to write with, some to just kind of relax with, some to sleep to. It's just a really great composition. And honestly, I don't have too much more to say about this one, so why don't we just go ahead and listen to Nate's Theme 2.0. Next up on this one, we're going to be listening to two tracks. I'm kind of cheating on this one, but these two things go together so perfectly and have a almost impossible time of separating them in my mind. The tracks I'm talking about are the title and opening demo theme from Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. Now, both of those and the entire soundtrack, and if I'm recalling correctly, the entire sound design is actually done by Koji Kondo, who... If you have any familiarity with early NES stuff, he, or at least Nintendo made NES stuff, he had a lot to do with the compositions for those soundtracks. As a matter of fact, he's going to be making another appearance on this episode a little bit later on, but we'll get to that when we get to that. So anyway, there's a lot of visual representation in my brain whenever I listen to this. I get the kind of this storybook thing that they're setting up with the uh, war against Ganon to walk well, him into the Golden Land, which eventually, you know, gets corrupted and turns into the Dark World. And at that point, Link to the Past was probably the most epic, I've, as want as I am not to say that word, but the most epic video game I had played to that point. So having this storybook presentation and this just incredible piece of music put in there it was just so well designed for what it was doing that it really, really hit it home for me and it almost made me like watch that introductory sequence every single time, or the opening demo sequence anyway, every single time that I got the game going. It was just, it really set the tone for the game and really kind of like set the stakes, I think, really well. So Maybe without the visual representation, it doesn't strike you quite as hard if it's not totally ingrained in your brain like it is for me, but... I'll let you make that call as we play the title and opening demo themes from A Link to the Past. A little behind the scenes on this. Normally, I just kind of insert the track, and I'll just keep recording. That one, actually, I listened all the way through again. It's just, I don't know. Like I said, that that song always takes me back to a certain time in my life that I, you know, recapturing your youth. The whole reason I play video games, basically, I think, in, in some sense. Anyway, um, getting away from that, we're going to go on to our next one, which is from a game that came out in the Well, it came out before Final Fantasy VII, but was sort of just stuck in its shadow for the rest of its existence. The song I'm talking about is Into the Wilderness from Wild Arms. Yes, Wild Arms, the little bastard child to Final Fantasy VII. It's kind of strange that this came out before it and is mostly regarded as kind of just a B-tier, which, I mean, it is a B-tier RPG, but a B-tier RPG that is completely overshadowed by Final Fantasy VII, so... The thing that I dig about this is just how much of a Western theme there is. I'm not normally a particular fan of the Western style music, I suppose, but I think throwing in the, uh, the whistle in there, which has kind of become a series mainstay throughout, uh, but this version in particular is the one that I enjoy more than any of the others. Uh, there is a, we'll say, redux of this um, in Wild Arms Alter Code F, which is a remake for the ps2 of the original wild arms which is absolutely terrible but that's not going to be something i'm going to talk about today that is a soundtrack i want to get to eventually but we'll see if we get there uh anyway this one in particular i really dig the whistle for whatever reason the guitar in this one is just really good so yeah like i said technical aspect wise of the music i i'm not very good at describing it i just kind of know what i dig and There's certain things that I can hit that I know why they work. If not on a compositional level, at least I know why they work for me. So, Into the Wilderness was composed by Michiku Nuruke, who, top of my head, composed the whole soundtrack for Wild Art. This one's a little bit more mellow than some of the other ones I might be into, but I totally dig this track. I have for years. And it's one I feel like it's overlooked, largely because of the game it's attached to. So, anyway, uh, without me talking too much more about it, why don't we just go ahead and listen to Into the Wilderness. And now jumping sounds entirely, we're now going to be listening to the Mass Effect theme, which is by Jack Wall and Sam Hewlett. This is almost the polar opposite of what uh, Into the Wilderness is, as this one relies very heavily on synths, especially the intro. Now, the thing I really dig about the Mass Effect theme is the way it starts off very synth-heavy when it's showing more of the, I guess, technological stuff. And then as the people are introduced into this opening sequence a little bit more, it changes from relying so heavily on synth to natural instrumentation. You hear a lot more strings in there. You hear a little bit more percussion. I'm not 100% sure that was intentional, but man, if it was, they nailed it. Even if they weren't really intending on that, boy, oh boy, they they stumbled on something pretty great with that. The the whole thing with this piece is that it really sets up the Mass Effect soundtrack. Now... the second and the third one rely a little bit more heavily on, um, we'll say, orchestral stuff versus what Mass Effect does, which is relies a lot more heavily on synth. And it really gives this kind of 70s sci-fi feel to it without making it sound dated at the same time, which I think is kind of a feat in of itself. And much like what I feel the opening demo from Link to the Past does for that one, the Mass Effect theme really sets up the adventure you're going to be going on. It just really is building to something. And you can feel that that track is building to something grandiose. And as much as I hate to lean back on that word again, but epic, I think anything that spans an entire galaxy, I think you can go ahead and call that an epic. So I'm going to go ahead and play the Mass Effect theme for you. What I do encourage you to do is after this podcast or maybe in the middle of this, I don't care when you do it, but I want you to check this out, is look at the opening sequence to the original Mass Effect and pay attention to the music and when the instrumentation changes, because I think it's a really cool effect that's incredibly subtle and maybe gets not noticed very often. So, and once you've had a chance to digest this, uh, go ahead and go look this up on YouTube. I think it's well worth looking into because it's a pretty cool effect. We're gonna go away from this century now and go back to oh man, 16-bit era again. I'm sorry, I know we're gonna rely pretty heavily on this, I think, for a little bit, but don't worry, this isn't gonna be all chiptunes. I do have soundtracks from, you know, stuff that's released as recently as in the last couple months. So don't fret about me relying too heavily on 16-bit era soundtracks. Anyway, this next piece is from Mega Man X. This is this is me cheating again. Uh, this is another one that is gonna be two different tracks, but They are so entwined with each other in my brain that I can't really separate them again. So, what we're going to be listening to is the title and opening stage for Mega Man X. As far as who composed this one specifically, I'm going to go ahead and admit I don't have a damn clue. But, what I am going to do is stumble my way through the five composers who worked on Mega Man X. So, we've got Setsuo Yamamoto, Makoto Tomozawa, Yuki Iwai, Yuko Takahara, and... Toshihiko Horiyama. Now, if you notice the pauses on those, I do have a, we'll say, real basic understanding of the pronunciation of Japanese. It's a lot of it might be guesswork, and man, I hope it doesn't come across that way, but uh, that's uh, maybe a little uh, how the sausage is made sort of thing. Anytime you hear me pronounce something Japanese, don't go betting the farm that I'm pronouncing it correctly. But what I know I am pronouncing correctly is this is the title and opening stage for Mega Man X. next one's going to be a little bit, let's say, different than everything else we've played so far. I think you can kind of get a good sense for what I like, but this one might be a little bit out there comparatively. This is from the original version of Lunar Silver Star for the Sega CD. Actually, let me rephrase that. This isn't from the original Japanese version of Lunar Silver Star. This is from the version that Working Designs localized for the Sega CD. Now, the original version of this track was a little bit more, as I'm seeing, quoted in the uh, "Bashing of Truth, that is Wikipedia, less lovey-dovey sounding, and wanted a greater sense of urgency. So this is what they came up with. Uh, I I think it actually did a pretty good job of conveying that want, and beyond any reason, it somehow synced up with the opening video pretty well, too, which is... Nothing short of amazing in my book. Now, the lyrics were redone by Victor Ireland, who was also the head of Working Designs. And Shia Almeida is the one who actually sang this version of the song. Now, the thing is, is listening to the original version of this, which I'm not going to play here, um, you get uh, very much the vocal inflection is about the same, and hit the beat of the lyrics pretty much the same, even if translation-wise they're quite a bit different. Now, the other thing is, too, the original Japanese version sounds pretty compressed and tinny, whereas the Working Designs re-release sounds a lot more full and rich. That's something you can go ahead and go look up on your own. It's really pretty easy to find. Um, It actually will probably be the first result that you look up if you look up Lunar Silver Star opening theme. What it really boils down to is I prefer the English version of this, It just has a much more... I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that it's more full-sounding. But it just has that sense of urgency that I kind of prefer to the more laid-back Japanese thing. This song really just reeks of the early 90s, maybe even the late 80s for me. You kind of get this image of somebody rocking uh, leg warmers and a headband dancing to this thing. The we'll say cheesy little record scratches that they throw in there with the electric guitar solo, that, you know, lasts all of 10 seconds for a two minute song. But anyway, I never officially got a name, but based on the lyrics, people have just called it fighting through the darkness. And having said it that way, I really unfortunately don't have a smooth way of transitioning into it. So here's the awkward transition to fighting through the darkness. I'll get better at this, I promise. This next piece you might think is cheating a little bit if you're familiar with where it's coming from we're going to be listening to final fantasy it's also known as the opening theme or prologue but but its official title these days is final fantasy now the reason why i say this one's a little bit of a cheat is because you don't hear this at the beginning of the game you play effectively a prologue chapter and to get across a continent you need to have a bridge built for you and to do so the king of the land that you're in wants you to rescue his daughter. So you head out, go beat the bad guy, Garland, and bring his daughter back. Now, the thing is, is you really know what's coming. If this is the first time you're playing this, this introductory sequence is kind of a cool thing to do. It gives you a good feel of the game and isn't particularly difficult either. What really caught me off guard when I heard this piece the first time was just going over the bridge and then you get what I would consider a cutscene. It might not really be a cutscene in a technical term, but whatever. We're going to go ahead and just roll with that. You get this cutscene, and this theme plays. And now, this might be a trend you've been noticing, but I have a thing for introductory songs that set up the rest of the game pretty well. And the text crawl that you get along with this theme playing really gives you a good sense of, oh, hey, I'm in for a much bigger adventure than I thought I was going to be. I know this piece, along with a lot of the Final Fantasy soundtracks, up to, oh boy, I want to say 10 might have been his last one that he was the, took the helm on. But uh, anyway, this one was handled by Nobuo Uematsu, who is sort of maybe the first person most people think of when they think of video game soundtracks, or at least a Japanese composer when you think of a video game soundtrack. This theme has been redone to hell and back. It gets reused in a lot of more contemporary Final Fantasies. There's a good reason for that. This track is really, really a wonderful piece of composition, and I'm incredibly impressed with just how well, not just any iteration of this is held up, but how well the NES version is held up. I did a little research looking at the remakes of this. Um, if you're unfamiliar, the original Final Fantasy has been remade for, you know, mobile phones, uh, I think, think the Wonderswan, uh, the PSP, the PlayStation 1. This game has gotten a lot of re-releases, and this track has gotten a lot of we'll say rearrangements of sorts but I think the original is the one that is held up the best in a sense and that might have something to do with my age I suppose I remember playing this as a kid and it's always kind of stuck with me so I want to go ahead and try to get this stuck in your head too and to think about every time you play a final fantasy game listen for this theme because it does pop up quite a bit even even if it is becoming a little bit more subtle and less used at times then It has been in the past. halfway done with this podcast now, and I have not brought up Falcom Sound Team JDK once. That's been largely a intentional choice, because I am a huge fan of Falcom Sound Team. If you're unfamiliar, and I can totally forgive you for being unfamiliar, they are the in-house band and composition group for the Falcom Development Studio, whose biggest series are Legend of Heroes and Ease. Now, the track we're going to be playing from is Ease, This one in particular holds kind of a special place for me because this is sort of the introduction to Falcom Sound Team as an entity for me. I have a very specific memory of laying in bed with my PSP, firing up E7, and then having this play, and just immediately was like, holy shit, this is awesome. And then playing the game a little bit more and a little bit more and finding more and more and more music in that game that I just completely dug. Probably nine times out of ten when I had fired this game up, I would go ahead and let that introductory sequence play through just because I like this song so much. I don't think I've actually said the name of it now, uh, but this is Innocent Primeval Breaker, which is kind of a ridiculous name, but a lot of the Falcom sound team track names are a little, we'll say ridiculous at times. Now, there's a shortened version that does play at the beginning of the game, but I'm going to play the whole damn thing for you because, well, I think I think because you, you deserve it. It is an incredibly cool track to listen to, and it's just rocking from beginning to end. It's got a lot of what I like as far as instrumentation goes. I am an absolute sucker for a violin, in like a fast-paced violin. I don't know why, and I don't know who turned me on to that, but for some reason that is just something that has always stuck with me, and a lot of Falcom Sound Team tracks have a violin mixed in, or sometimes even a couple, which a friend of mine pointed out to me, which more than explains my love of Falcom Sound Team. I've also got a little bit more of a personal reason for being into this song now, maybe more so than I did before, but that's probably going to be on the next episode. Uh, I don't want to show my hand too, too much, but the an episode I've got planned that I'm going to be recording soon is an E 7-based one. That, that was something I wanted to hold off on doing for a while, just because I wanted to get a little bit more situated with this podcast before I went ahead and rolled that out. But... Circumstances have arisen that sort of make me want to do it sooner rather than later. But that's neither here nor there. So, without me stepping on this one any further, this is Innocent Primeval Breaker from the E7 soundtrack. track we're going to be listening to here is something from someone that has had a huge influence on what I enjoy in video game music. Uh, outside of the chiptune stuff, I've kind of become a fan of prog rock without really knowing what the hell prog rock ever was. This next track is another two-parter, much like, uh, you know, like I've said, I've cheated a few times here and done that with the, with these. Um, this one is from Baton Kaitos, Eternal Wings in the Lost Ocean, and that is by Matoi Sakuraba. Now, I'm sure there's a strong possibility that you've played something with Matoi Sakuraba uh, helming the composition work. He, he's he got a very distinct prog rock sound to him that I think a lot of people kind of criticize him for kind of aping his own material. And I'm not really going to go ahead and disagree with that. Because it sort of feels like if you've heard one Matoi Sakuraba soundtrack, you may have heard them all. Uh, there's... Man, I'm not doing a good job of selling this, am I? <laughs> so, anyway... um. My, my point in with Matoi Sakuraba's stuff is he has a very specific style when he's going for something in particular. What you may not know is, yes, while his stuff is very prog rock heavy, he also did something that completely surprised the hell out of me. He did the soundtrack for Dark Souls. I had no goddamn clue he did the Dark Souls soundtrack. I was looking up the soundtrack at some point and just saw composition by Matoi Sakuraba. I'm like, wait, whoa, okay, that's a, that is a completely different like tone for what he does, completely different musical style for what he does. And for him to almost entirely reset his musical style to that is kind of a great feat. But anyway, this, these two tracks that I'm going to be combining for this uh, next part is called Prologue Peak and Nadir Nadir's Whale. I don't really know how you say it, but anyway, this soundtrack, I originally kind of picked up like a mini soundtrack for this game when I had bought the uh, game itself. It came with, uh, man, I want to say it's, uh, you know, Toys R Us, rest in peace, rest in bankruptcy, rest in not bankruptcy now. I don't know what the hell's going on with Toys R Us, nor do I particularly care. Anyway, um, Bat and Kaidos, man, it's got a great soundtrack, it's... I'd say, like, a B-tier RPG. It's not the greatest RPG in the world, but, I mean, you know, if you had a GameCube in the early 2000s, then, you know, your JRPG options were, let's say, a little limited. And this was this was an interesting one to get into. I think Baton Kaito's Origins is a much more refined experience and maybe a little bit more interesting. I do think the Baton Kaito's games are interesting as far as storytelling goes, but the gameplay mechanics are uh, card like a card system that's not entirely well explained or even particularly interesting at times, but anyway, what I want to talk about is that these two tracks were my introduction into prog rock. I really had no concept of what prog rock was, I guess, because I just didn't grow up with it. Um, My mother never listened to it, and, uh, you know, as cool as my grandmother is, she certainly never was into prog rock, so yeah, it it was sort of left to my own devices to discover this, and kind of growing up in the side of town I grew up on, prog rock really wasn't a uh, at the forefront of anyone's mind, it was a lot of hip hop, a lot of R and B, and I sort of latched onto the R and B side of things. So, anyway, um, yeah, after listening to this and then getting into it, and then I forget who it was that kind of explained that you know Motoy Sakuraba's style is very prog rock heavy. I started looking into prog rock, and I'm like, oh, well, okay, that explains that. And uh, I don't want to say like I, I started getting into prog rock because I really haven't outside of uh, video game soundtracks, but you know, I, I, I dig it. If it's on the radio, I'm not going to turn it off. Um, for all that I listen to the radio, and for all that Prog Rock is probably on the radio. But anyway, uh, without me babbling on too much further about this, I want to go ahead and start playing uh, Prologue Peak and 80 Years' Well from Batonkaidos, Eternal Wings, and The Lost Ocean. And now for something decidedly not prog rock. The next track we're going to be talking about here is Advantageous Development, and that is from Right In 4. If you're not familiar with the Ride In series, it is a vertical scrolling shoot em up, shooter, shmup, whatever you want to call them. Uh, you know my penchant for not enjoying the word shmup nor uh, Metroidvania, but whatever. Uh, for long time listeners of the podcast that has now been retired, the main podcast of this site, it. Um, for a long time, advantageous development was the intro theme that we used. I actually switched back to it quite a ways back just because I kind of got tired of, I guess, digging up new music every single episode. And we already had the MP3 of it fading out nicely. So I was like, Hey, you know, I'll just continue to use this. But yeah, that was with the original two guys. I started this podcast with who haven't been involved with it for five, six years now at this point. I don't know. I don't really know how long it's been. Um, Yeah. It took five, six years to get, uh, you know 100 episodes out so whatever anyway <laughs> um this thing has a lot of i don't want to say nostalgia for me just because of it being our theme song for a long time but i also just really dig the write in 4 soundtrack now right in 4 or rather its soundtrack are composed by Go Sato and Akira Sato so without me going on too much further about that why don't we just go ahead and play Advantageous Development from Right in 4 and you can just Um, If you've been a longtime listener of the flagship retired podcast, uh, you can have a nice trip down memory lane while we go ahead and jam out to this. Now, digging back into Nintendo stuff here, uh, the next track we're going to be playing is the Ground Theme from Super Mario Bros. Now, it might be a little cliche at this point to, you know, put this in here, but I, I am an NES kid. You know, I kind of got my start on the NES, and Super Mario Bros. was sort of the video game that got me and, you know, a ton of other people uh, playing video games. You know, I I think I've talked about this before previously, but, you know, there's possibly a good section of people who have never heard the original podcast who are just dying to hear what my video game history is. I, I say that with every ounce of sarcasm that I can possibly drip out of my mouth. Anyway, um, my very first video game I remember playing was Rambo for the NES, except I have this weird memory of it being, like, terrible looking, and it's not because it actually wasn't so great looking, but it was because, um, if you're familiar with the NES, you put a card in, and sometimes it gets this weird, like, glitchy kind of thing where just the pictures just completely jumbled, and there's, like, ones and zeros, and just oddball, like, textures everywhere, I don't know if textures is the right word for it, but you know what I'm talking about, um, I think that's what was going on with that cart, now that I'm, like, picturing it back in my memory, I'm like, oh, you know what, I think that cart just needed to get cleaned, and, you know, back then, eh, I don't think we all knew how that worked, so, needless to say, I wasn't too terribly impressed with it, um, and then a few weeks later, we went to a birthday party at another friend's house, and... Super Mario Brothers was there and oh boy was I fucking hooked. Man, video games right there just became a part of my life that have eh, gone away for a few years but I came kind of crawling back to them when uh uh man, I think it was uh yeah, Dragon Quest 8 came out and a friend of mine bought it. I I I kind of went playing like I don't know Gran Turismo occasionally and a couple other like import drift games uh if you, yeah, yeah, anyway, it's not particularly interesting. But uh this this is just one of those tracks that, yeah, it's been kinda of done to death, and you hear it in you hear it mixed into like every Mario game imaginable, but it's timeless, it's catchy, and people just know this damn thing. And I think that's a reason why it's so not only just good, but it's also important. It is an important piece of video game music that anyone who is, you know, man, I don't know five years old up to maybe 50 years old can hear this and just think, oh, that's a Super Mario Brothers theme. Now, again, it's not technically the theme. It's called the ground theme, but whatever. Anyway, why don't we just go ahead and play that and this way we can get to the next track because I'm running a little longer than I thought I was going to for first episode here. ahead and jump up a generation of Nintendo machines and we're going to jump back to the Super Nintendo. I know I said I'm not going to rely too heavily on that system, but we are going to rely on it a little bit just because of the era of my life that it came up in and how important that machine is to me. So this next track is another two-parter, I guess. Yeah, like I said, I'm cheating a little bit, but whatever. Uh, The names of these are A Premonition and Chrono Trigger, which sort of kills the surprise of where this is coming from. So obviously this is a soundtrack that was done largely by Yasunori Mitsuda. I'm willing to bet he did this part, but um, eventually he kind of burned himself out. And uh, Nobuo Uematsu, who is sort of, uh, or at the time anyway, was sort of Squaresoft slash Square Enix, uh, like go-to composer for their RPGs. This was, or he basically took over after Mitsuda sort of uh, worked himself nearly to death on this soundtrack. This was Mitsuda's first role as the composer for a soundtrack in its entirety, or at least it was supposed to be. Um, he, This was sort of a uh, put-up-or-shut-up moment for him. How the hell he managed to talk his way into doing this? A gigantic game with a, you know quote-unquote, as it's always been quoted as, a dream team of people working on this thing at Squaresoft's like height of their powers he just kind of comes in and just like sits down and demands that he work on this because otherwise he's going to walk and they gave it to him and goddamn it if he didn't uh, if he didn't deliver on this it is an incredible soundtrack but i don't think i need to tell you that um if you have any familiarity with video game music and like rpg stuff chrono trigger is sort of just one of those timeless accepted things of yeah this is great Uh, there's like really no arguing with it there's almost no clunkers that i can think of maybe outside of like that johnny theme which is eh, whatever i mean that whole johnny segment is probably the only weak part of that game but anyway why don't we just go ahead and listen to a premonition and chrono trigger from chrono trigger yeah that was interesting wasn't it Next, we're gonna get into a track from a game that's very important to me. It's effectively what got me back into video games pretty hard. I had fallen off video games for a while. It—it's it, not that I lost interest. I was always playing something like Gran Turismo or I don't know something kind of silly, pointless. It was just—it was more of a casual hobby than the—I don't want to say the only hobby I have basically right now, outside of this, and the you know the four other podcasts I do. God, I don't know what the hell's wrong with me. Neither here nor there. Basically, Dragon Quest VIII got me back into video games very hard, because the next game I bought after having played, oh, 130 hours with the Dragon Quest VIII, and I believe completely finishing it, I think I got the secret ending, or pro- I don't know, whatever (laughs) that was, uh, you know, the additional 15 hours of grinding against crazy hard enemies to get more powerful and just see the ending again. But, yeah, anyway, this is the overture for Dragon Quest VIII, and it's largely the same overture as every other dragon quest slash dragon warrior uh, game has ever used the composer is koichi Sugiyama, who has said some things recently and in the past that you know, aren't so great kind of kind of gives an indication that uh he's politically not so great and might actually have some uh we'll say views that kind of make him a piece of shit but anyway uh he I don't want to get into the Dragon Quest XI soundtrack either, because he feels like he kind of mailed that into. I don't know. Uh, at this point, it just feels like he's cashing a check for this. But the overture for Dragon Quest always kind of takes me to a place, like, mentally, that I just, it, I don't know, brings me a little bit of peace. Puts me back in a good spot in my life where I was, like, rediscovering, like, how much I love video games again. So, separating the art from the artist for this one, it's a little easier for me just because there's 130 hours worth of experience, uh of me playing something and hearing this every time I fired up the game. So I don't know, It, it it's a little bit easier to separate the two. But anyway, without uh, further going on, this is the Overture from Dragon Quest VIII. All right, and let's wrap up the inaugural episode of Rock Out With Your Card Out with something... Man, I don't know. Like I said, I'm cheating here a little bit, but these these are three tracks that all link together very well in my brain because they all kind of play through the introduction to the first stage of Panzer Dragon Orta. These tracks are Followed the Ancient World, Dragon Mares, and City in the Storm. And the soundtrack was composed by Sauri Kobayashi who, if I'm not mistaken, actually composed the music for the three previous uh, Panzer Dragoon titles. Panzer Dragoon Orta's got a weird place in my, I guess, heart. It, okay, let's start this. I bought an Xbox when it first came out, played the hell out of Halo. I didn't really see much of anything else on the horizon for the system that I thought looked interesting. I already had a PS2, pretty sure I had a GameCube, and I just decided, you know what, this Xbox thing is going to be like dead in the water here in a little while. Why don't I just get rid of it now while it's still worth something? I sold it to GameStop, got however much cash I ended up getting for it, and, oh, I don't know, a few weeks later, I saw the Xbox Nation, a now defunct magazine, which almost every magazine is defunct, but anyway, um, a now defunct Xbox magazine with Panzer Dragoon Orta on the cover, and I started reading the magazine while I was on break at work, and I think it was the very next day, I ended up going and getting another Xbox, because I knew goddamn well I was going to want to buy this game. It looked incredible. I enjoyed it so much, I think within mm, a couple, we'll say, weeks of it, uh, I ended up getting a Saturn um, at this site that was selling them off at, like, I don't know, like $50 for, yeah, anyway, it was kind of nuts. Like, I ended up with the Knights uh, 3D controller, uh, picked up Panzer Dragoon and Panzer Vi for, oof, I don't know, all total that had to have been maybe like $120, which still at the time. Uh, Panzer Dragoon Saga is one of those games I am internally kicking myself for because, God damn it, back in 2002 or whatever it was, I did not want to spend, oh, I don't know, a whopping $120 for a complete in-box copy of Panzer Dragoon Saga. I'll be damned if I was going to pay something like that, and now that same co- copy would probably go for like $600, so... Yeah, bright guy is me, and now I'm eternally afraid of missing out on something, so when I see something that I want and I know is limited, I just strike on it, even if I'm paying a little bit higher of a price, because I don't want to end up having to spend nine times what the goddamn thing it cost originally. So, anyway, um, yeah, so Pins Orta not only got me into Pins Dragoon at the series, but it also got me back into the Xbox, and which I kind of ended up shelving, eh, I don't know, a little while later, because that was sort of when I went through as my previous or as i previously mentioned in the last segment i guess that's what you call these segments anyway as i just previously mentioned i sort of had stopped playing video games for a while because i'd gotten into autocross and anime and then just video games sort of took a uh, back shelf yeah that, that, that that's a weird weird crossover i think of uh autocross and anime but hey whatever i guess that's just who i am <sighs> so anyway Normally, I would say, hey, without me talking too much more, I want to go ahead and get us to the next track, but since these are the ending tracks to this episode of Rock Out With Your Card Out, I did actually want to go ahead and do do a little plugging. You can follow me personally on Twitter, at Jason Ariola. You can follow my website that this podcast is attached to, at Games and Junk, and you can follow Rock Out With Your Card Out on Twitter at, well, at Rowico Podcast, that is R-W-Y-C-O Podcast. If you dig this... um. Probably not on iTunes yet, but maybe drop us a line on Twitter. Uh, you can drop me an email, or actually, why don't we do this? You can drop me an email for this podcast, just put Robico in the title, at podcast at uh, If there's any sort of themes you want to hear, uh, you got any suggestions of albums that just came out that uh, you know you might want me to cover or might want to just tune me into, basically, uh, you can do that on, on the email, you can do that on Twitter, it doesn't really matter, I'll I'll, I'll see it. One way or the other, I'm, I'm, I'm in control of everything for this site, except all the back-end stuff, because that's Vanessa. Uh, I'll hail my web empress, I guess. So, um, This is not the only podcast we do at Games and Junk. We have a multitude of other podcasts. If normal music, if you want to call it that, is more your style, we've got Big Treble in Little China with John Lucero and Brittany Beschel, both of whom have been on a few of the other podcasts we do. Uh, the flagship podcast Kind of petered out at episode one hundred, a couple of months ago, maybe a month ago. I forget how long it's been now, but um, we sort of retired it. I have an idea on doing something with it to bring it back, but eh, we'll see what happens with it. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm already kind of juggling enough uh, podcasts as it is, plus trying to write occasionally. So we'll we'll see if uh, we'll see if I can actually make that one happen. But we've also just got uh, another podcast called Multimedia Failure that we just launched that. We cover the history of video game movies. Now, we're starting from the very beginning, sort of. We started with Super Mario Bros., and uh, by the time this goes up, the second one won't be up, but it will be up the week after this one. There, This goes up, and it will be the Super Mario Brothers OVA that, uh, until we started doing research for this podcast, we had no idea existed. Uh, y- yeah, so we're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but we're staying in the very early days of it. Uh, Vanessa's tolerancy for anime OVAs is, let's say, a little bit more limited than mine and John's. So we're, we're trying to not make her suffer through too much of it so she doesn't uh, kill herself or just bounce out of the podcast. Uh, yeah, so that one is with me, uh, John Lucero, and Vanessa Cahill. We've also got a Game Club podcast where we talk about video games in long-form discussions. Uh, so long-form, in fact, that the... I haven't mentioned it on this, so I'll mention it now. Tactics Ogre is probably my favorite video game uh, with The Legend of Zelda a Link to the Past being a very, very close second. Uh, you know, it actually could depend on the day the week that you ask me on which one is my favorite game, but we recently did A Link to the Past on the Game Club, which that actually wasn't too, too long. I was kind of surprised it didn't go longer. It was about two and a half hours or so. Um, and I recently sort of got to do a dream project with two guys from RP Gamer, who I've, you know, become pals with. Uh, they... I heard them talking on the RPG cast over there that they thought Tactics Ogre was a much better game than Final Fantasy Tactics, and I am 100% inclined to agree with them. I have been looking for somebody to do Tactics Ogre with for a game club. Uh wasn't getting really any bites. Uh, anyone that uh, you know sort of normally on the podcast, just because they're not too keen on starting up uh, a game that could take easily 80 hours if you just kind of mainline it. So I reached out to uh, Jonathan Stringer and Josh Carpenter from RP Gamer to see if they were interested, and sure enough, they, they were. So uh, I, I, I basically, this is a dream project of mine, is working on a very long-form podcast dedicated to nothing but tactics ogre. We got the first chapter done as well as a lot of the development stuff behind the scenes of uh, the differences between the games. Uh, if you're unaware, there's multiple versions of this game on multiple systems, but uh, anyway, you, if you're really interested to go check it out over there, but yeah, so there's, there's a multitude of podcasts that you can listen to on the site. If any of them particularly your fancy, you can always just go ahead and share those around and, uh, like, share, subscribe, like, share, subscribe, and that's the same thing you can do with this, so, again, if you have any feedback, reach out to me one way or the other, I'd appreciate it, because I'd love to get some feedback, because I'm not 100% sure where I want to take this, sh- uh, I-, I, just know I love video game music, I want to talk about it, and, you know, it's, I've got my own website, why the hell not take advantage of that, so, uh, I also want to thank Melissa Diaz, who is a long, long time friend of mine, Ooh, Geez, I don't know, like, 2000, 2001-ish, I think, her and I became friends, um, she designed the logo for this podcast, and I had something else in mind originally. And she threw this out there, and I was like, "Oh no, no! This is this is the logo. This is much better than what I had in mind." So, uh, yeah, this is this is why you let an artist do their art. Uh, and also, again, another thanks to Chibi Tech for composing the uh, theme song for this. Thank God, it it's better than I deserve, I think. But anyway, uh, why don't we go ahead and just wrap this episode up and. We're going to listen to, again, in case you've forgotten, because it's been four minutes, I think I've been rambling about uh, plugging the site that I run. Uh, we're going to be listening to Fall of the Ancient World, Dragon Mares, City in the Storm from Panzer Dragoon Orta, and again, those are composed by Saudi Kobayashi. So, until next time, guys, keep rocking with your card out. I don't have an ending for this thing, obviously.